Max Verstappen recovers from a penalty and a mid-race crash to beat pole getter Charles Leclerc to victory down the Las Vegas Strip. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato and this is round 21, the inaugural Las Vegas Grand Prix. The cold and smooth Las Vegas strip circuit got off to a rocky start in practice, but by the time of the start of the race, the track had set up a fascinating contest for victory, with Charles Leclerc on pole after blitzing Max Verstappen by more than three-tenths of a second in qualifying. Leclerc had failed to convert his last 11 pole positions to victory, but this looked like his best chance of the bunch. And the Monegasque controlled the race thanks to better tyre wear on the mediums and a Verstappen 5 second penalty for passing off track. At mid-distance he looked on his way to breaking the drought. But a mid-race safety car reset the race and brought Verstappen back into contention. With Ferrari opting not to pit for fresh rubber, Verstappen had little trouble overhauling the Scarlet car before the end of the race, leaving Leclerc with another second place. So was this a race that got away from Charles Leclerc? To help answer that question and debrief the inaugural Las Vegas Grand Prix, I'm joined by Matt Koch, F1 editor at Speed Cafe, and my co-host on the Fox Sports Pit Talk podcast. Matt, how are you going? I'm I'm pretty good. And you, you get a feeling that intro, you could sort of cut and paste that to a lot of races that Charles Leclerc <laughs> starts on pole, in fairness. Well, the last uh, 12 now yeah. that he started on pole, so it's no small number. It's not a good ratio that he's got poles to wins. I mean, that's normally the marker of, of a really top-notch Formula 1 driver. And his is sort of a little bit center-esque. Senna didn't have a great conversion rate either. Mm, yes, I think at least in Charles Leclerc's defense, a lot of this comes <laughs> down to the quality of his car and his yeah. team in some yeah. circumstances, doesn't it? So uh, something he'll presumably, well, hopefully be looking to address in future seasons. But whether or not that's with Ferrari in the long run, well, we'll wait and see and they'll have to prove it. The Las Vegas Grand Prix, Matt, is almost certainly the most hyped F1 race in history, certainly in the build-up to it. Did mute itself a little bit after the first day when it started on not even necessarily the wrong foot, maybe on no feet at all <laughs> after the water valve cover destroyed Carlos Sainz's Ferrari and Esteban Ocon's chassis and even damaged uh, Joe Guanyu's Alfa Romeo as well. Second practice took place at 2.30 in the morning with no fans who were kicked out but have not been offered refunds. But qualifying was pretty interesting and the race turned out to be probably among the better ones of the year. One of the, Some people are saying, in fact, it's even the best one of the year. What did you make of the entire, not necessarily the event, of course, this is the strategy report, but of the, the way this weekend ran in a sporting sense? It was a difficult one to really read. Normally... You know, by the end of Friday's running, you've got a pretty good idea of who's quick and who's not. You've seen the long run pace. You've got an idea of single lap pace as well. Obviously, it's not it's, it's not a perfect picture by any stretch, but you've got a pretty good indication. But the way Thursday, I almost said Friday, but the way yeah. Thursday unfolded. It was Friday for one of the seasons. Yeah, well, that's, yeah it was. It was um, but you didn't have that because... You know, normally the tempo of a of a practice session is you do a bit of running, then you do a single lap run, and then you do some long runs at the end. But with the extended practice two and effectively no running in practice one, it was a different tempo. Everyone was running their own program, so it wasn't easy to like for like comparison. Unless you wanted to sit there and really crunch the numbers, which probably you did. Um, <laughs> I mean, I love a spreadsheet, but uh, I. I, I I also love a sleep um, <laughs> and sleep one out on uh, on Friday. But um, unless you really sat there and crunched it, it was really difficult to get a gauge. It was only 
woman went into practice three that we got a bit of a read on it and then qualifying even more so. And even then, we didn't know because it's like the cooler conditions. We know the teams that heat their tires up, we're going to excel in, in qualifying. But what did that mean for the race? So then we went into the race with more unknowns than we normally would. And I think that helped the event a little bit like the, the Max Verstappen argument with sprint races where it gives you a preview of the race. We didn't have that usual build-up. And as a result, we didn't have all the knowledge that we'd usually have to predict what's going to happen. And therefore, everything that we saw in Sunday's race or Saturday night's race was more of a surprise and more engaging and, and interesting, I think, as a result. Yeah, and even looking at the practice times and things like that, the track was such an unusual variable, almost a little bit random, improving I- I- invariably by the end of every session, but starting in a pretty green place with no support categories on offer to clean up the track, which was opened every day to local traffic. So track conditions were really unusual by Formula One standards because even most street tracks we do visit don't have that kind of access to the public. So really different circumstances. And the track itself was a major talking point uh, over the course of the weekend, not only because the temperatures were quite cold, sort of low teens, some sessions I think were around 10 degrees Celsius, and track conditions were only maybe one or two degrees warmer because it was nighttime, no sunshine, all that kind of stuff. And the surface was really quite slippery. It'd been newly resurfaced, so it had that sort of oily quality about it, but was also very smooth because it is, again, a public road. The racing ended up being pretty good, as we've sort of mentioned it. Low degradation also meant that it was easy for drivers to push within certain limits of graining, all that kind of stuff. But some drivers complained, didn't they, at the end of it? They were saying, oh, it's it's too slippery. It's got to be something they worked on. But is that actually, to your mind, maybe one of the positives of this race? The fact that it kind of challenged drivers in a way that's not usual for the very long now Grand Prix calendar? I think so, because it introduces a degree of natural jeopardy. You listen to some of the complaints, going back to the sprint race stuff again, and the complaints there are that they're predictable. It's all the first stint of a race and there's not much overtaking. Everyone's on the same strategy. We need to introduce, in Christian Horner's words, some jeopardy. And they're talking about reverse grids and all that sort of stuff to spice up that racing. But what we saw in Las Vegas, we had that natural jeopardy because the track was newly resurfaced but low grip. It wasn't completely smooth. I mean, Lando Norris was caught out by a bump Mm. that ended his race that's a good i mean it's not good that he crashed out got taken to hospital <laughs> but it's a good thing that there are bumps there and it tests the drivers and that even the world's best can drop it and make a mistake that that's a good thing billiard table smooth racetracks are, are terrible um and then the low track temperatures and everything else it just it invited drivers to push too hard and grain their tires push too hard and lock up run wide you know, spin the wheels out of a corner and, and ruin their run. There were all these variables that I guess usually aren't there that we saw in Las Vegas, combining with all the unknowns in terms of preparation and everything else to create a really good race. And then I think the circuit helped a little bit as well, a simplistic circuit with long straights allowing you know DRS trains and slip streams and the, the field couldn't pull away from itself. So it had a comparatively condensed field, all of that wrapped together net product is arguably the best show of the year. 
Mm. Best show of the year still ended with Max Verstappen winning, but that's because it was 2023, and inevitably yeah, okay. that has to happen. Unless you're in Singapore, it's the only asterisk <laughs> Max Verstappen has to win races. But he did have to work for this one, and it seemed uncertain for a lot of the race, in fact. Uh, he dropped down to a, a, as low as 10th and 11th uh, partway through the race after his first pit stop because of a five-second penalty, which we might talk about in just a second. But the moment that won him the race, if we look at the defining moment of this Grand Prix, was ironically probably his lowest of the night. A crash with George Russell on lap 26. He tried to dive down the inside of turn 12, which leads on to the strip. Relatively tight corner, in fact. It looked wider beforehand, but was made quite tight by the track limits. Ended up with some minor front wing damage, uh, but conveniently enough for him, caused a safety car, which brought him right back into contention. It was an easy decision for Red Bull Racing to pit Verstappen, who was already 10 laps into a stint at that stage and was going to probably have to stop again anyway. But a much harder call for Ferrari and Charles Leclerc in the net lead, who had stopped only five laps earlier and was anticipating probably a one-stop race. Not stopping meant he maintained track position for Leclerc, but left him vulnerable, as we ultimately saw. Did that decision cost Leclerc the race? It's tough because I... It wasn't that decision in isolation. It was that decision in concert with Red Bull's decision to pit that ultimately transformed the race because the safety car helped because it bunched the field back up. But Charles' tyres weren't that old, but they were older. And and in Formula 1, any tiny performance differential is a massive performance differential because even though we talk about Max Verstappen going off and winning everything, he's, he's not that far ahead of everyone else if you look back at you know, we used to see gaps of half a second or more between first and second between teammates. It was often over a second. So we're not seeing those gaps anymore. Formula One is much tighter and those performance differentiators are comparatively minuscule. So even a five-lap tyre delta is significant. Now, the timing of when that safety car came out didn't leave Ferrari much of an opportunity. It happened at turn 12 or the clash between... Russell and uh, and Max happened at, at turn twelve. Obviously, Charles was uh, was leading. He was halfway down the strip, a little bit further, perhaps. By the time the safety car and, and everything else is declared, he's really close to pit entry, and Ferrari has no time to react. Red Bull has a little bit more time with uh, with Sergio Perez. Not a lot. They probably made the right call by by boxing him well they definitely did because he showed good pace they didn't lose any track position uh you know, ultimately after the pit stops Sergio was second and uh and Charles was still leading Max dropped a spot but he had track position the field was bunched and then he had new tires so there was an opportunity there still for Red Bull and Max to lose the race because he still had to come through Oscar Piastri, Pierre Gasly, and and his teammate. Obviously, he did in comparatively short order. He was in the lead by lap 37. But yeah, it was that decision by Ferrari that was the defining moment, but not in isolation. This wasn't a failing of Ferrari's pit wall. They were a victim of circumstance and just... A, a lack of opportunity to, to really react. It's the frustrating element of safety cars, isn't it? Sometimes they can really spice up a Grand Prix, and I guess if you're a Max Verstappen fan, in this case it did, because it brought him back into contention, but when it's at, it's often at this point, just sort of after half distance, when you can see the chequered flag from a strategic point of view, it can often neutralise races for others and ruin good strategies that may have been brewing and Ferrari was really badly caught out in this circumstance leading to that 12th unconverted pole for Charles Leclerc. But the car was 
genuinely in the ballpark this weekend. Probably stronger in a relative sense than Monza because there were just no high-speed corners at Las Vegas. The few that were were all flat out, so it didn't really count. And I don't know, <laughs> there's probably a point to be made about overcounting the number of corners at this circuit generally. Uh, but he was also in a commanding position, thanks in part to Verstappen getting that five-second penalty for the move off the road at the very first turn on this very slippery circuit uh, that put him back into the pack, ultimately caused the collision with George Russell and so on. The rest is history. The five-second penalty in particular I want to talk about here because we've seen this become a little bit of a talking point through the year. We've seen a lot of drivers making moves off the track. Partly that's because of the way we're doing track limits these days, but nonetheless seeing quite a few of them. I think George Russell in particular is a repeat offender. Quite ironic, often he then complains about this five-second penalty, but he's a repeat offender. Um, because they'll execute a move off the track and then just build the five-second buffer and the penalty comes to nothing really or costs them less than they gained. It ultimately didn't really play out in this race because of the way it turned. Uh, Charles Leclerc even passed Verstappen on track before the penalty was applied anyway. But that approach to making penalties in general as opposed to the, let's say, old-fashioned way of asking drivers to swap positions back, which is something that's more or less been worked out of the way races are run now, where does that sit with you in the way it impacts races and potentially influences results and driver behaviour? I love a good rule book, <laughs> And if there's an opportunity there to exploit a weakness in the rules, then I'm all for that being exploited. So the way that teams and drivers now will just pass without any regard for track limits and then drive off into the sunset or moonlight. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm all for that because it's within the regulations. The bigger question is whether the regulations are fit for purpose. And I think that's that doesn't sit well with me. The reason being that if you're sitting behind a car, not only do you have the challenge of overtaking, but you're also dealing with you know, the turbulence and the extra tire wear and every the overheating that comes with that. So by pushing the car off the track and taking the five-second penalty, you're gaining both track position and negating some of the negatives of sitting b behind that car. So it's almost that five-second penalty isn't enough, in my opinion. Max got in front. He was penalized. But then Charles was able to stick with him. Yeah, there was a little bit of a gap that built up in the first couple of laps, but Charles reeled that back in by the time Max took his first stop. And as a result, through that period of the race, Charles was arguably not as quick as he could have been because he was caught up in, in turbulent air and damaging his tyres, which perhaps brought his first stop forward a couple of laps. And then what would that have done if he'd have stopped on, say, lap 23 or 24 rather than 21 or would he have perhaps been even able to extend out to lap 26 and pit with everyone else we've just spoken the timing perhaps didn't work out with that but you know going to that extent the race is suddenly very different so was the five second penalty for Verstappen fair under the rules yes because that's what the rule is but in a sporting sense no because Ultimately, the one that was penalised, in my opinion, was Leclerc and not Max Verstappen. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that Formula One's moved away from that swapping situation. It's not always perfect, admittedly, because by the time, for example, in this race, the stewards had decided to penalise him, Verstappen was fairly far, far up the road, two and a half seconds, could argue well. Stopping and slowing down is less than five seconds, so what difference does it make? We also had the opportunity of that safety car, didn't we, if they'd made a faster decision? So it, it should also be noted that if teams swap positions, that's not a regulatory thing. That's an that's advice from race control. Now, the race director 
can say, I think you should give that permission, that, that position back, but he isn't the judge or jury or executioner. He's just a friendly voice in the year saying, hey, if you don't do the, if you give that position back, I don't think the stewards will look at it. But he doesn't have any influence or shouldn't have any influence over the stewards. They could still look at that and still penalize you. So th- th- that's not enshrined in the regulations that you can uh, re- you know, redress a position, which is a, a big thing in particularly Australian supercars racing. Um, that that's not in the regulations. It encourages teams to abuse that regulation, take the five-second penalty, knowing that even if they see the position back, they could still get it anyway. So why would you see the position back? They're not incentivized to do that. Yeah, it's sort of that thing where you can't... Once something's broken, it can't be fixed. An old, almost gentleman's agreement, something Formula 1 has a bit of a weird relationship with the term because often we only talk about it when it's being broken. But the idea that that would be the way to do it, even if it was an informal method... It potentially is, we can't go back because, as you say, you'd probably have to codify something that's pretty hard to codify because, as we say, what happens if a driver gets between them, if the gap is too large, if it's been too many laps, whatever the case. So potentially we are just stuck with this method we've ended up with. But it'll be interesting to see if this becomes a, a sort of discussion point on the sidelines over the next year because the drivers have, ironically again, it's been George Russell, but the drivers have often talked about the lack of penalty sometimes the five-second penalty brings with it. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Colby Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flojo. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. Now, on a final point on Ferrari's race, and we are delving into the theoretical here, but Carlos Sainz was such a big talking point over the course of the weekend. Very upset from first practice, obviously, about having his car destroyed and having to serve a subsequent 10-second penalty for replacing his battery, which was destroyed by the water valve cover that broke free from the tarmac and caused all that disruption on practice day. He ended up scoring reasonably good points. I mean, the 10-place penalty was not absolutely diabolical for him because he qualified second anyway, so he was only starting just outside the points. He did capitalise on an early uh, safety car because he was caught up in that first corner melee, but he scored good points for Ferrari anyway, and they're looking potentially good to challenge for second in the constructor standings. But how much, how valuable would he have been running up the front for Charles Leclerc's victory chances? Acknowledging we had the safety car that bunched everyone up anyway, but was... Is there a second reason, I suppose, for Ferrari to be disappointed by circumstance this weekend in, in the sense that maybe a victory went begging? I think that's fair because you look at Leclerc and Science through practice, and again, they take practice with a grain of salt, but they were nip and tuck within sort of a tenth of one another. So you could therefore suggest that Carlos in race trim, in free air and the ability to run at the front like uh, like Charles had, would have been about the same pace as as Charles would have been throughout. Instead, he had to work through traffic and, and could only get back to um, what was it seventh at the end. I mean, he was he was second last at the end of the uh, the opening lap. So well, I mean, it was third last technically, but second last. But uh, yeah, him being out of position meant that Charles had no rear gunner, um, and therefore was exposed to the punch and counterpunch of Red Bull. Now, obviously, Sergio Perez was a bit of a sitting duck with the amount of wing that he was carrying. He's admitted that himself. Uh, it was just too much drag on the back of that car, which punched a nice big hole for the, the DRS to be extra effective behind. And uh, without that cover, 
Ferrari was Ferrari was vulnerable. More the point, Charles Leclerc was was vulnerable because they didn't even have that that Sergio Perez uh, Ministry of Defense role <laughs> that uh, that he's so good at from Abu Dhabi the other year. You know, just having a car there to spoil to to you know, to ruin someone's tires for a lap or two to overheat the car, to force them to cool down for a couple of laps and just interrupt that flow. That's what Charles needed, that that tail gunner. Not to say the result would have necessarily been different, but Ferrari's odds of a different result were were higher. Um, Charles Leclerc was much better, much better than, than seventh. I would go so far as to say that Charles Leclerc was a top three car and driver in uh, in Las Vegas, probably ahead of uh, of Sergio. Carlos Sainz, yes, yes, absolutely. But I'm glad you mentioned Sergio Perez there because he did have one of his better races of the season, finishing on the podium at least. Is, is, I don't even, even think it's 50% of his results, actually. I should have gone back and calculated that. So by default, by purely by definition, one of his better Grand Prix of the year. Started 11th, but he was dropped back in this first lap uh, nonsense, I suppose. We could say the slippery track, Fernando Alonso spin. But that actually kind of accidentally put him on the most effective strategy. Effectively a one-stop from hard tie to hard tie because he was able to get off the mediums during the virtual safety car on that first lap. So it was essentially one very cheap pit stop for him by the time the race really got going. Briefly had the lead of this Grand Prix as well, but he finished third, as we've mentioned. He did have that different setup too to Max Verstappen that left him a little bit down on straight line speed. But do you think he played, regard, disregarding that first lap because he came back into play pretty quickly, do you think he played his best hand to try and stay ahead here? And should this at least been a 1-2 finish for Red Bull? I think he got the most he could have out of it. I don't think he defended hard enough in the closing laps there are a couple of instances there where he was mugged um particularly the last lap i don't think he defended it as, as hard as he might have um you know it was obvious that uh that Charles was going to have a go it was telegraphed from a lap beforehand when it was obvious that he was you know charging his batteries and doing everything else for maximum deployment on that final run but he was hamstrung a little bit as well by setup so you know his dial was cast in a head-to-head between Himself and Max Verstappen, Sergio was always going to end up second best just by setup. Um, Max had the faster car in a straight line, and that was the defining factor. It didn't matter how fast you were around the lap, as long as you could stay within DRS range uh, and slipstream range, more the point, you could more or less get back into uh, into contention down the strip. So it was second at best, and then given that we know the setup difference between Max and Sergio, given we know Charles Leclerc was on a similar downforce level to Max Verstappen in that head-to-head I think it was probably fair that Sergio fell victim there now I think again he could have done more but I think third is probably the best he could have hoped for given the setup choices that were made both within Red Bull and his car and also elsewhere in the field that said I mean he was 18th on lap two so to get back to p3 in a 50 lap race that yeah, you know, and that wasn't safety car assisted in that he pitted on the same lap as everyone else under the safety car, so he didn't gain fifteen positions because everyone else around him stopped. He worked his way through the field. There was a little bit of pit sequence stuff that he benefited from, but third, I think, was the best that he could have hoped for in that situation. Probably above what he could have hoped for, because as I've just said, all things being considered, if Carlos Sainz had started in position, 
he probably would have only been fourth. Yeah, I think that's a fair call. Uh, his Minister of Defence tag has faded a little bit now. Maybe he's still just about hanging on to at least the Prince of Streets, maybe not necessarily <laughs> King of Streets, but he's got a chance to reset next year. Briefly on Mercedes here, we really only talked about them in the context of how they helped Max Verstappen win in a weird, perverse way. Hamilton was caught out on the, by those first lap spins, then a puncture with Oscar Piastri, which we'll talk about in a second. George Russell had that crash with Verstappen and had to serve a five-second post-race penalty. The team thought and insisted after the race that it had podium pace all this weekend. But given the safety car did close up the field at about half distance, both drivers ended up on the favourable strategy by pitting under that safety car as well. And George Russell had the post-second penalty applied and was quite a long way down from the leading trio, but in fourth when the chequered flag fell. Is it overreach to say that Mercedes had the potential to beat Sergio Perez or Charles Leclerc in this Grand Prix, even if they were quicker than the results suggested? I think it is, and the results play that out in that George Russell had a largely unimpacted race and got beaten by Sergio, who had an impacted race. Um, now, strategically, we know that Sergio ended up on a better strategy. George, he was on the mediums, swapped on that 15 onto the hards. Uh and then again in the safety car at 26. So strategically, he wasn't on the ideal uh, on the ideal strategy. Luck fell Sergio's way. But based on the sheer pace of the Red Bull, I'm not convinced that even if they were on the same strategy, that Sergio wouldn't have run him down anyway. Um, you know, Lewis Hamilton had good pace even after the puncture. He clawed his way back into to eighth, having been running um, 18th. Everyone seems to have run 18th at some point in the race, <laughs> apart from Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen, although Max gave it a go. Um, it's, you know, Mercedes were, were at best third team, and I'd even go so far as to suggest on, uh, on Saturday night they were fourth best team, just given Oscar Piastri's pace. I mean, Oscar came charging through the field. He was strategically advantaged and then disadvantaged, I guess. But you know, he pitted in at around the same time as what Lewis Hamilton did. Um, he was racing with Lewis Hamilton. He was up into eighth before all that, seventh rather, even before all that happened. And was carving his way through the field, wasn't he? He was really energizing the race. So that makes me think that the McLaren was faster than Mercedes. And to your question, yeah, I think saying that Mercedes was a podium chance is absolutely an overstretch. And I think they were probably lucky to end up with uh, with fourth, fourth across the line for uh, for George. Let's have a look at McLaren's weekend, or particularly Oscar Piastri's, I guess, considering Lando Norris's race lasted precious few laps. The team ended up kind of nowhere in the points. Oscar Piastri finished 10th, got a bonus point for fastest lap, which maybe is a reasonable return considering both cars were out in Q1 after what team boss Andrea Stella described as a miscalculation. The team had expected the soft tyres to essentially have more than one hot lap in them based on FP3. By the time they realised this wasn't going to be the case in Q1, it was too late to pit. Both cars were out in Q1 first time since Miami. How much of an error was that in the context that the team also expected to not be very competitive here around the slow corners? And was that in the way that it's been for the last few races, a bit of an exaggeration in itself. Like, we hear Lando Norris ahead of every Grand Prix say, well, there are some slow corners at this track. I think we're going to be uncompetitive. Admittedly, this track is only slow corners, but was it a convenient way to hide the performance that was in the car by saying, well, we didn't expect to go well here when actually a much bigger result should have been on the table? This shows that 
McLaren still isn't 100% confident in what it's got because they don't exude confidence going into any event. Every event they say, oh, I don't know, <laughs> where they ultimately prove to be quick. So I, I don't know if that's deliberate or not. I suspect probably not because when there's been a good track, they've usually called it out. Think of Qatar. They, they went in there suggesting that that will be a good event for them and so it proved. Uh, and then other events, less so. And I've, I've gone to the point of pinpointing corners where we're going to struggle here, or we believe we're going to struggle here because of X. And I think back to the Belgian Grand Prix, Andrea Stella pointed to La Source Hairpin and the bus stop chicane. Because they were slow corners, that's where the team would hemorrhage speed. And then being at VMAX, the, the car doesn't, you know, you're not going to gain a lot at, at, at VMAX going up through Eau Rouge and Radial. So there was little opportunity for them to really claw that back at least that was their theory going into it and it's sort of been a trend that's played out where anytime there's a slow corner even suzuka they pointed to the the uh the casino triangle at the end of the lap um amusing i'm talking about casinos and suzuka having just come from las vegas um (laughs) but they pointed to that corner and also the hairpin as areas of weakness where they were hemorrhaging time versus their others so there are weaknesses in that car and that just makes them stop and question themselves the the confidence that they should have just isn't there because I think they've been pretty battered over the last two or three years and they don't want to go out and say, yeah, we're going to do really well and then have an absolute shocker. I think that confidence and that optimism will grow. They always go into an event hoping for, for a positive result, but they just don't They don't know because I'm, I'm not sure that they fully understand the entirety of their package yet. You know, They've effectively only had since the Austrian Grand Prix with this car. It, it's not a different car, but it is a different car. So, yeah, I th- I think them downplaying this result, they, they underperformed in qualifying. Absolutely no holes barred uh, with that one. But, yeah, it's just interesting that their recovery was so strong. I, I didn't expect Oscar to be you know, running third shortly after the pit stops um, for the safety car. I didn't expect him to be knocking on the door of fourth place in the closing stages save for the uh the late pit stop so they probably outperformed on sunday but they definitely underperformed oh sorry they outperformed on saturday but they <laughs> underperformed on on friday and qualifying it's so confusing this race weekend yeah especially because they were both technically saturday so it's just not worth even considering it's for the best yeah just uh, briefly on a wrap up oscar piastri's race that puncture with lewis hamilton lap 16 sent him back to the pack had to switch to the hard tire which meant he had to save the medium for a unscheduled stop at the end which ultimately dropped him just outside the points and he fought back in to the points the team was uh, waiting and hoping that there'd be another safety car in that last half of the race probably fair considering how relatively action-packed the first half would be but everyone was subsequently on their best behavior but that's also a degree uh, you know we often like to say well safety cars sometimes lead to more safety cars but i think the slipperiness of the track everyone getting the tires up to temperature seeing the checkered flag as well without having to make a second stop sometimes really focuses minds and we do tend to get little straightforward packet pockets of races in those circumstances so maybe not that surprising but unfortunately he couldn't get a, a bigger result more worthy of the pace he did show somewhat unexpectedly in the race as a final point to wrap this one up uh, we did have an interesting battle for points just behind the podium it was Esteban Ocon who ultimately got fourth after George Russell served that post-race penalty but Ocon as opposed to almost everyone 
who sort of rose and their fortunes changed based on safety car position, didn't make any stops behind any safety cars. He stuck to his single stop from medium to hard on lap 20, which was in the middle of nowhere relative to the safety cars. Rocketed up as well from a Q1 exit, it's got to be said, to score really big points. Also finished just ahead of Lance Stroll, who came from 19th to finish 6th, but he did capitalise on both safety cars. So that's sort of where the difference was made there. Big result for Alpine, which has needed it, and for Stroll, who's had a pretty rotten middle part of the year, but it's had a nice little resurgence in this America's leg after Qatar. But I guess the point I want to make here is that no one really seemed sure about the best way to tackle this race. So sort of borderline one stop, two stop, and we've got a little bit of a mix of each. Esteban Ocon showed that while stopping behind the safety car was usually beneficial, you didn't have to stop behind the safety car. It's sort of big result. I guess going into that is, you know, the cold conditions, new track, new venue, all that kind of stuff. Next year, it'll be similarly cold. It's going to be at night, regardless of the time, same time of year as well. Do you suspect in 2024 and going forward, we're going to get similarly unpredictable, uh, unusual, unexpected results? Or is this just first race, everyone's learned a lot now, and next year, we're probably going to get everyone converge onto a similar approach for what is an unusual Las Vegas Grand Prix weekend? Well, everyone had already sort of converged to an extent this time around, now the laps that that first pit stop cycle happened in were were a little more extended than we'd usually see, just because teams had varying degrees of of data and confidence in their in their tyres and ability to to not grain them. But I think this will always be a wild card race for teams if it's held at similar times of the evening, because usually when we're talking about night races in singapore you've got high ambient temperatures you've got high track temperature the race doesn't happen that long after sunset in abu dhabi so you've got residual track temperature there from from the 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 day during the the sun during the day there's no residual track temperature in las vegas and even if you bring the race a couple of hours forward the track is still going to be cold graining if the tires stay fundamentally the same pirelli we know is going to be the supplier for the next few years so we can in broad strokes suggests that that's going to be the case so the tires are going to have a very narrow operating window they'll grain up teams that can get the tires working will benefit teams that can't will struggle and have to pit earlier so i think we're always going to see a longer pit stop cycle than what we usually see and i think that will also force some teams that are struggling with tires to run two stop versus one stop throw in the variable of a safety car in there which you can never sort of discount that on a street circuit throw in you know some oil on the track at the start from a classic <laughs> car blowing up pre-race um which is what skittled the field at turn one ultimately and uh you know the, i mean that's why esteban ocon went from 16th to 8th by the end of the uh the opening lap um but you've got enough variables there and as i said at the top enough natural variation and natural jeopardy being introduced that i think this will always be a slightly unpredictable race it's not going to be you know, full throw the cards in the air and pick up the pick up one, and that's your winner. Um, it's not going to be quite to that extent. The, the best will still rise to the top, but I think this has got the the possibility of doing two things: one, either really condensing the field, which I think we saw this year, or really elongating the gaps, which in a dull race you could well see because those at the back struggle with their tires and get dropped and lapped and everything else, and it becomes a real tire management race. But I don't think we yet have a clear one or two stop strategy approach to the Las Vegas Grand Prix. The teams will have tire data, but I think they'll get there in a year's time and you throw that out the window because that tire data is relevant only to this particular car, this particular year, 
with these particular track conditions. Who knows what happens next year? Maybe there's maybe there's more grip on track. Yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. It will be interesting. And ultimately, what made this race so interesting was cars out of position as well. And that never harms a Grand Prix. Max Verstappen was well out of position. He ended up winning. It was pretty exciting for another Max Verstappen victory. Matt, thanks for joining me to talk about the Las Vegas Grand Prix. No worries. It was was a good one. And uh, I didn't think I'd be saying this on Thursday, but I'm actually looking forward to Las Vegas 2024. Did the Las Vegas Grand Prix live up to the hype? Well, no, but it was never going to given the sometimes silly level of expectation piled on it by Formula One. But it did deliver an exciting race against a spectacular backdrop in a big win for the sport's ambition, which means it's hard not to grade it as anything other than a success. We'll see how F1 backs it up though in 2024. Thanks very much to Matt Kosh for joining me to debrief the Las Vegas Grand Prix. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Laminato. I'll be back next week for the season-closing Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on!